Welcome to the Double Lip Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, howdy, Glenn. It's been a, quite a few weeks since we last recorded. Uh, it's been a busy summer for both of us. Uh, so, uh, you know, sorry for the delay to our listening audience, but uh, how you been? What have you been up to? Well, uh, it's been a busy couple of weeks. I'll talk about some of the things in the episode today that involve some testimony and various things, but I was actually recently traveling. This is the first time I'd traveled since uh, COVID had hit, and yeah. so I went to Las Vegas to go work with Alice White for a couple of days. So I spent time with her and her husband, Chris, and we played around with blood and oh, oh, made a what? bunch of blood videos and... I've been working on this webinar for the examination of bloody impressions. And I've been doing blood research and fingerprints for, I mean, going back to, I don't know, 2006 maybe or so. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, 15 years I've always been, had an interest in bloody impressions. But I, I've never really taught a workshop or a webinar, you know, devoted to this. So I wanted some more material and I've always appreciated how Alice – has gone about, you know, doing her distortion trainings where they, you know, film this and, you know, you can theorize, you, you know, see the effect, but you theorize what the cause was for the various distortions. And blood is just so different and in such a different, unique beast that uh, I was pretty, uh, pretty excited to get about two days worth of, of teaching materials, uh, you know, uh, videos and photographs under different conditions. And I'm really excited to put this together. So I'll just I'll finish a plug here. If anyone's interested in that workshop or some of the other webinars I've been teaching through Alice's company, Evolve Forensics, go to www.evolveforensics.com and sign up for those. All right, good to hear. I've, I've been working on a, a number of uh, training pieces for just a variety of different things here over the past few weeks as well, but um, not quite ready to unveil or release them. It's just <laughs> a lot of a lot of that you know pre work that goes into this kind of thing. So sure, uh, but I'll have more details later. Been doing a lot more cooking recently though. Um, oh, that's cool. Tonight was uh, green Thai curry. Ooh, uh, so nice. Yeah. I'm uh, it, I made I, I made it a, uh, earlier in the week. It turned out better the first time, so I need to figure out what I did uh, then that was different and 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 go back to it. Uh, I don't know. I think it's that science background where I I try to follow the recipe exactly first, and then I tinker a little in this direction, a little in that direction, and, and revise. And hopefully, I don't get tired of the dish before I I get it down and into the way I like it. Interesting. Yeah, I, I know exa exactly what you mean. I'm I'm having that experience right now with fried rice. I'm trying oh. to get fried rice like the restaurant. You know, I I can never get it to taste just like the restaurant. Got it. And uh, clam chowder, which I think I finally perfected my clam chowder. Before we get into the episode, a couple things. Uh, first, uh, big thanks to some new Patreon supporters, uh, to Anna and Anya, or Anna and Anya. Uh, depending on on pronunciation there uh again these these pairs keep coming in like, <laughs> like yeah. last episode i'm like oh i gotta mention these two together because that, that uh that just works well together so thank you both very much for joining us and contributing to our show we really do appreciate it and also uh our our 
intro little game, uh, the anagram. Uh, so Glenn, for this week, uh, the words are uncivil scone. Uh, uncivil, U-N-C-I-V-I-L, scone, like the you know breakfast uh, pastry, S-C-O-N-E. So work through it here uh, through the episode, and we'll give the answer at the end. All right, Glenn, anything else before we get into the topic this week? Well, I'm uh, uh, curious. Have, have you traveled since since the co- everything with COVID? Have you had any travel experiences yet? Actually, no. Uh, <laughs> I've, I have worked from a home. I just actually checked it here recently uh, since, oh, whatever that Monday was, March 15th, 17th, 14th, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I, I guess the the most I've I've traveled um, uh, is down to Tucson area uh, for for a side gig I have. Um, I've driven down there, oh maybe ten times or so uh, since all this has started, um, and uh, but and and actually and haven't in the past uh, month and a half or so. Uh, but, uh, looks like I'll be going back here, um, again fairly soon, but, uh, no, not, not, you know, cross country or in the airports at all. And, and in fact, when I, looks like I'm heading back to work in the office starting in the middle of uh, this month, August. Uh, and I, for now, my, my tentative plans are to, uh, to drive out there, um, and there's, there's, we're going to do a two week rotation where the office is only half full of people on any given day hmm. and, uh, and drive back uh, each time. Yeah. I, it was my first time flying since all of this and it, it really was very weird. There are some things I appreciated at the airport that I thought oh, that that's good. Um, but I, I, I mean, you know, from the minute I got into the, the Uber to the airport, you know, throughout the airport, the entire plane flight, you know, throughout the airport in Las Vegas and Uber and, and you know, you, you wear your mask the entire time and you know, right. can't really take it off. And especially when I got into Las Vegas, the heat there, I mean, the heat, that's that 110 <laughs> heat that, you know, you don't seem to have a problem with. But, uh, it, <laughs> you know, literally fried my eyes when I walked out of the airport and I could I'm breathing through this mask and trying to catch a breath, and it's just it's very overpowering. I mean, I, I did find wearing the mask for just such long periods of time very tiring. And then when I'm at the airport, I just observed lots of things that were concerning to me. You know, people, uh, you know, one in four people not wearing a mask correctly, not over their nose. You know, they're yep. you know, it's a chin mask. You know, great. And and I noticed that like a lot of the surfaces, you know, the the community tables where people were eating, there's nobody cleaning those. And I sat there for an hour and I watched multiple people get up and use these tables, and they were never cleaned in that period. So I'm like, well, this isn't great. I mean, there there are ways to open up and do this, and you know, this seems to be sort of a, a half effort where, you know, I it. it I mean, there is this personal, of course, safety and responsibility of just washing your hands and trying not to contribute to it. But I mean, it, it was it was different. It was a very different flying experience uh, for me. Those are kind of all go into you know the, re- the reasons why I'm you know likely. Uh, I mean, things can always change, you know, for, especially for the better. But at least for right now, my plan is to be driving back and forth to uh, to the LA area. 
Yeah. Um, my my brother and I have you know have kind of a, an in joke about the um, the people that wear their masks with their their nose hanging out, even if it's just over their mouth, but with their nose hanging out. Yes. Uh, it's it's kind of like wearing your underwear with your dick hanging out. Uh, <laughs> so that it's just it's shorthand for anyone that with your nose hanging out of your mask, you're a dick. <laughs> um, but I mean, as for growing up in Phoenix, right? I mean, I, I noticed it a lot more now than I used to when I was a kid. Like the heat. Uh, I remember going with my friend when we were, you know, teenagers, junior high. You know, getting on the phone. Hey, let's meet at the the high school. We'll go play racquetball in July at three in the afternoon. And we, we, <laughs> like, we didn't even bring water, right? We all will find water. Like, <laughs> it was just kind of crazy to think back now, but. I mean, imagine going to a, a, a crime scene outside in July in Phoenix or Vegas. I mean, the mask got to be on, right? <laughs> like, uh, depending on what what kind of scene you're at, that's just yeah, that's just and, life. and in full jumpsuit. And I, mean, I, I don't, I really don't know how you guys survive in that kind of environment. <laughs> I mean, I, all I can say is you 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 don't get used to it, but you get used to it. Um, yeah, because who else is going to do it? You know. So, so we ready to get into the main topic for the week? Yes. All right. So a little shout out first to Megan in Oklahoma. So thank you, Megan, for sending me the email about this case and uh, and, and suggesting it be a good topic for the show because uh, obviously agree and and here we are doing it. Um. So this is a case out of uh, New York, actually, not Oklahoma, and it is the state of New York uh, versus Michael Ross. The, this decision from the judge was just released uh, here very recently, June 30th of 2020 from the Bronx, New York. Uh, and now this, this isn't a fingerprint case. Uh, this has to do with firearms testimony, um, and a motion to preclude the, uh, the firearms experts from testifying that the, uh, the shell casings found at a crime scene matched the firearm found in the defendant's car, uh, as a, I guess it seems like a fry hearing kind of situation. Uh, Glenn, do you have any more background on the case in general? Well, it, it's interesting a, a little bit. It was actually given to me to review in another case that I was involved in. So, and and I'll talk about that probably a little bit after uh, sure. some of these these cases I've been involved in recently. But yeah, it was actually given to me to to look at and go, hey. Uh, we want you to look at this and, you know, is this something that, you know, we might have to, you know, be thinking about in this case? Is this a possible outcome where the fingerprint testimony might be limited in some way? And so when I read this, I, you know, I read through it from the perspective of what if this was going to happen in the case I was testifying in. So that, that that's my exposure to it. And then I was surprised at how recent it was because I think I received it maybe the first or second week in July and saw that this had just come out. I went, whoa, I, I had yeah. not heard this in the community at all. So uh, when you sent it to me, I went, oh, yeah, I know it. And then, <laughs> and, and, and then the day before you sent it to me, someone sent it to me because I'm referenced in this, which uh, caught me off guard when I was reading it. Uh, my name is in here somewhere about the, the research from the fingerprint field. Okay. So uh, let me jump down to the the ending first uh, with the conclusions uh, that the the judge has reached in this case, and that it's the people can call in the uh, expert to testify about class characteristics that would either include or exclude the firearm. However, 
the expert uh, or the examiner may not offer uh, opinions uh, that opine on the significance of marks other than class characteristics. Uh, basically, you know, you can say, yeah, yeah, the type of gun, uh, that, that these casings came from includes this. It's, you know, it could have come from this type of gun, but nothing, uh, can be said to the jury about the individualizing characteristics, uh, that the examiner found in common between, uh, the, the firearm, uh, and the casings found at the scene. So uh, that's the part that surprised me the most. I mean, there are plenty of opinions out there that limit expert testimony, and many of them have come out before in the past in firearms or in handwriting. But none of them have actually ever limited the examiner to just class characteristics. Uh, for example, previous firearms ones, off the top of my head, I can't think of, I can't think of the, the one, the name of it. But there are several firearms in, in handwriting that allowed the examiner to come in and talk about the matching similar characteristics, individual characteristics. They could talk about the theory behind it. They could say what was similar and dissimilar. They simply weren't allowed to give an opinion. This was the first one I'd ever read that wouldn't even allow them to opine about which characteristics were considered, if you will, individual or quote unquote unique. Well, so as a as an overall starting point, um, in my first read through here of uh, of the opinion of you now all the details and the basis behind um, all of it. Oh boy, um, there's. There's a some important stuff that the the in my opinion the judge does not understand or is factually incorrect about, and the experts that the defense brought in. Oh boy, um, the, even just a few quotes that the judge specifically included to support you know her siding with them, uh lead me to question whether whether or not they understand much of anything in regard to some of these issues i i was flabbergasted about uh again this is the stuff that you know the judge included from that side the side that she sided with it underlines them either misunderstanding or misleading uh on on issues so We'll get into all of that, but that's, I just wanted to start with a, an overall where I'm headed uh, with, uh, with the opinion here. So, yeah, I, I hear you, and, you know, I definitely had an, a similar sort of reaction when I read this, although I, I have to tell you a couple of things. I, I have a feeling that throughout the evening we're going to have a few different opinions here, and we may not that's always fine. agree on, it, on, you know, on all these topics. But this was one where... I actually thought the judge did a pretty good analysis of certain things, although I found that the judge might have given weight to certain things that were a little more or less than others that I probably would have. I, I, I don't agree with the overall decision because I generally don't agree with the decision of letting something in but then not allowing the ultimate opinion where you end up letting lay people sort of assign weight to the the thing that they're assessing and all the research that i'm usually going to cite or and whenever i'm involved in a daubert hearing or admissibility hearing i always try to bring up that the research is pretty clear that lay people 
non-trained people looking at things tend to overvalue them uh, when there are similarities and they can't really put proper weight or put things in perspective as opposed to the expert who has a better sense of rarity, specificity, how much weight to assign to things right. and theoretically should should have that. So that, that – um, so usually with these types of decisions, I'm not a fan of limiting the expert. I'd almost rather it just not come in at all than come in sort of piecemeal and allow certain things. So I, I never know to look at these as a win or a loss. I, I think the community generally has looked at these as they didn't win the hearing because they're they're not coming in to, to ultimately give their opinion. So – yeah, I mean, that ultimately, that that's how I feel in this case. And then there's a sense that there are certain moments within the opinion that I'm actually a little impressed with the judge's ability to handle or walk through some complicated topics. And I'm sure we'll get to it. But one of the ones was the her concern with the subclass characteristics in firearms. Right. Yeah. And that, that seemed to be a big driving factor. And in other words, it, had, did. it was a big focus of, of her decision here. Yeah. That seemed to be a, a big topic through much of the opinion. Yeah. 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 And, and I, 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 as I read this, I even thought, well, I wonder if this had been a different discipline. You know, I, I usually try to project this onto fingerprints. Would this have been different with fingerprints? Because we don't have these subclass characteristics. So uh, coming into this, uh, some background here that's, that's included uh, in this opinion is on the New York uh, Crime Lab that was involved. Uh, they're accredited. They you know, don't have any outstanding findings. The the expert, multiple years in the field, you know, was able to discuss uh, accuracy studies. You know, it seems like overall, you know, if, if you're a forensic scientist looking into going into a court hearing like this, that at least on a surface level, all the basic boxes are checked. This isn't a unaccredited lab without protocols, you know, just, just waltzing in and, and saying, well, this is just the way we've always done it. You know, th there's, there's obviously a lot more background and preparation than that. Yeah, there was even references to, you know, proficiency test, internal testing, like you said, yep. quality assurance, having standard operating procedures. Uh, it didn't say anything about documentation, which I noted, and it never seemed to come up as an issue either. So I don't know one yep. way or another how or if they documented, but that didn't seem to be any of the issues that were being raised in this case. And that's uh, we'll come back to that probably towards the end after, uh, but but I noted that as well. And in addition to the firearms expert uh, that came in to testify, uh, was also uh, the the lab's uh, quality assurance manager. Uh, for the defense, uh, they had uh, David Fegman from the uh, Hastings Law School and Dr. Nicholas Skurich of UC Irvine. So uh, uh, David Fegman is, is a dean there and, in, uh, and is an expert in the field of scientific research methodology and study design. Uh, and Dr. Skurich is with an ac uh, academic background in psychology. So I think one of the first things that comes up in this discussion is who is the relevant scientific community. Uh, you know, that's, that's under that Fry test is being generally accepted in the relevant community. So the question is, who's the relevant community? Right. Uh, you know, all the way on the prosecution side, it's just the experts. And all the way on the defense side, well, in some cases, I believe I've heard it said, it's just 
you know the real quote unquote real scientists uh, in universities are are doing that kind of research. And I think obviously the the, the relevant community includes uh, a you know broader spectrum than what the extremes on either side might say. And conclusion I agreed with was the judge you know did you know basically said that the relevant community includes members from from both of these sides. And we've discussed this before. I don't think. Yeah. You know, th- that's a, kind of a surprising, you know, for anyone to hear that we agree with that general conclusion. Yeah. You know, I've had a couple of hearings here in Minnesota with Simon Cole and and at least twice the hearings involved whether or not Simon Cole was part of that general community of, of you know, considered practitioners or to have an opinion. And my experience with all, with all, all of these Fry or Daubert hearings is that generally they are going to be allowed to testify at the admissibility hearing. Then, depending on the decision about the hearing, then it becomes another discussion about whether or not they will be allowed to testify at trial. So judges tend to allow these uh, almost anyone with knowledge or some, you know, experience or education or whatever it might be on the topic, the bar's pretty low. They're going to probably come in for the admissibility hearing, but then it might be a little more rigorous analysis if they're going to testify at the trial. Right. The the element on this of who the relevant scientific community is and, and that I would disagree with and where I th- believe that the the judge either misunderstands or was misled uh is is this sentence research in traditional scientific disciplines including study design and research methodology statistics statistics and psychology are unified in their view that tool mark identification is just a practice in search of a science and is not reliable yeah i, I yeah i remember that quote that sounds like like david uh, well, that's not a quote from David. This is from, I mean, unless it's being repeated back, this, it wasn't attributed. This is just in the judge's um, uh, you know, opinion, a, a sentence from her opinion. Oh, I, I, I guess I attributed that to David's testimony, which you know, sounds like it would be something David, uh, within the realm of what David would say, what right. his views are. And I, I find that to be difficult to believe. Uh, that that researchers from uh, fields of study design, research methodology, statistics, and psychology are unified 100% that this is not reliable and in just a practice in search of a science. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, I, yes, as, as purely written, right. Now, several of these witnesses... And I, I couldn't tell if all of them, but it wouldn't surprise me if all uh, were, are involved in, and we'll get to, I'm sure, some discussion on this a little bit later, CSAFE. Yes. The Center for Statistics and Applications in Forensic Evidence. So it's this unified group being led in Ames, I think it's Ames, Iowa. And, I believe so. Yeah, and they have these connections with UC Irvine, Carnegie Mellon, and uh, um, other institutions. So I don't know if all of these are members, but... Certainly, there. That's a it's an ongoing theme here, and and the view from CSAFE is that this really isn't a science yet. There aren't these data, but CSAFE will solve that problem because they will be the people to develop these models and put the science behind this and fill in the holes. Since that was their goal, I think we talked about them as an organization years ago when they got their 
$20 million to do this over a five-year period and then were renewed, I think, with another millions of tens of millions of dollars. And, you know, we haven't seen anything come out of that that organization really that was supposed to shape all of this. There have been some publications and papers and some training and various things, but certainly not uh, not a model and not uh, you know not methods or methodologies or anything yet that were supposed to come out of it. So, but it wouldn't surprise me if whoever said that or said something along those lines was effectively saying the view from CSAFE is that this doesn't this doesn't have scientific or statistical backing yet. Uh, right. Well, again, I agree that in the next sentence uh, that both groups comprise this being practitioners and researchers, researchers being a very general uh, term uh, to be comprised the relevant scientific community. Uh, I, I would disagree that that it, it, the way it's phrased here puts it that that these two groups are are completely separate and at odds with each other, uh, with a lot a whole yeah. lot of overlap. And yeah. I, I don't find that to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, David's background, I've met him and have discussions over the years. I mean, he reminds me a lot of, you know, I, I kind of put him in the box of Michael Sachs, Jay Kohler, uh, to some degree, Simon Cole, uh, uh, you know, various people who are very knowledgeable about the law. And, you know, David's background is very much law. And he's written books, uh, um, Oh, what's the book? Science in the Law, I think it is. And uh, he, he's a major contributor to that book, editor, and and so forth. And it's it's basically a book for lawyers on what are the issues in all the different forensic science disciplines, you know, that need to be raised. What what's the case law and and other things. So I mean, David's knowledgeable in the broad sense about this. And I remember years ago, back in the first Daubert hearings, around the time of Plaza. David was very vocal about his views on fingerprints back then as well. I have not seen him at all come up in fingerprint issues, especially once you know we started doing all of the research. I don't right. think I've, I've even seen him mention the word fingerprint since 2009. The, uh, the next couple pages here uh, go into a pretty good discussion on uh, class, subclass, and unique characteristics. Yes, uh, and then even further on um, different conclusions. Did you, did you note the, the the five conclusion scale that they had going there? Um, I did, and uh, and some concerns along those lines. And there's, I believe, a couple of really good points um, that distinguishing between these subclass characteristics uh, again a feature that can it be uh, seen in multiple different firearms because of the manufacturing process, but is, is looks more like a unique characteristic than just like number of, of like the caliber of the bullet. That's clearly class, right? But there might be these subclass that can be seen in multiple firearms, even though they kind of look like unique characteristics. Yeah. It, um, it's sort of an accident that happens during the machining process. Right. Uh, l let's say if you were making shoes or tires, like a defect in the mold. So it, it in itself, when it creates from the mold, the object, it has what it looks like an accidentally, uh, you know, acquired characteristic, but 
all the objects coming out of that mold are going to have that accidentally acquired, you know, randomly acquired characteristic. So that's the subclass part of it. It is actually a random sort of defect, but all objects are going to then get that in that line or series that go through that until that defect is removed or, uh, you know, is ground down or wears down or whatever. So, yeah, that, that, that's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it, it creates potentially what look to be like random characteristics, but in fact aren't and could be shared by at least a subset, not all, but a subset of uh, objects coming out of that manufacturing process. And what she describes here is the difficulty that examiners face in determining whether or not it's subclass or uh, or unique. How would you and, know? And how would you know? And uh, that that's I mean that is it's a, a very good point to to raise uh, in in considering you know the accuracy or the potential for error in this type of comparison. Yes. And she also raises another good point, um, talking about the sufficiency for an identification conclusion. Uh, and it's a similar, it's similar in, in latent print and it's difficult to describe this sufficiency threshold. Um, you, you may describe identification when you have sufficient agreement and well, how do you know it's sufficient? Well, then that's when I reach an identification and it's sounding circular. Part of that being how because difficult it is. it is to, because it is right. But, you know, part of the reason why examiners would talk in that circular fashion isn't necessarily because they're they're trying to confuse, but because it's difficult to describe uh, sufficiency for identification. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and need to come up with a better way of describing that. Yes, I mean, the reality is because it's a subjective decision. I mean, that they sort of need to own the limits of it. That the reason I can't describe exactly how much is enough because we don't have ascribed methods of weighting these characteristics. So it's enough when I have decided that I think they're from the same source, which is a completely subjective determination. And and, right. and again, disciplines where firearms, I'm looking at you guys, you tend to want to avoid talking about subjectivity. You don't want to own that subjectivity. You want to minimize it and focus on objective measurements, which I noticed is even in this decision, which is true. I mean, they do have objective measurements such as measuring caliber and number of lands and grooves and things that are data that are measurements although they are still interpreted, they're still interpreted by the analyst, which again always goes back to my point that even when you have quote-unquote objective data, whether it's a photo or a count or a measurement, you're still interpreting that and it still has to pass through your lens and your filter of interpretation. Right. The, 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 yeah, some of those uh, statements are called out here as, uh, as, as examples emphasizing the objective measurements that were made in the comparison uh, but really trying to minimize the subjectiveness overall that goes into it. And, and again, fair criticism. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Then in the next portion of the opinion, it moves into discuss discussing uh, accuracy studies and error rates. Hey, can I point out in footnote 12? Oh, I, I didn't read through the footnotes. Is that, is that where Dr. Langenberg uh, is, is uh, called, called out? Oh, it perhaps, <laughs> and and other and other greats in the field. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, and Dr. Drawer, Dr. Langenberg. All right, all right. Dr. Salyards from the uh, Army Crime oh, Lab. Yep, Dr. Salyards. Yep. Look at that. <laughs> Look at my company. <laughs> Going through this discussion of accuracy studies and error rates was the part that re- so far I was like, okay, this is a little bit of a you know, th- you know thing. I disagree with 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 uh, this being viewed as like a uniform wall in disagreement with the experts and and this oh yeah, yeah the the expert could have worded this better and and you know fair point from the judge this is where I just was just like I cannot believe this I just can't believe yeah that. but in, in an adversarial system could it go any other way I mean really I mean True. this is exactly this is exactly why the adversarial system is the worst place to have these scientific debates. And that's the problem, is that you end up getting very defensive and minimizing your limitations while you know overemphasizing perhaps what appear to be your strength. But From yes, both sides. Right. Yeah, no, from, both, from both sides, exactly. And, and I'm just as guilty of it, having been in these kinds of things, and I'll describe even today as a similar experience. So, uh, it, it, and it even starts with most of the toolmark industry studies report a high degree of accuracy by trained forensic examiners. Yes. And uh, first, I want to talk about the the different study designs. So they, and again, being from this Ames group, you know, they're really pushing. It seems like this Ames black box study uh, about firearms examination, which was the only one valued by PCAST. Right, and the judge here in this case, uh, and it was and it was emphasized how it had a different design than other accuracy studies uh, conducted on this type of uh, of examination. Right. The difference being that uh, in many other studies, it is a set to set comparison, meaning you're given a set of of unknowns, a set of knowns, um, and you just kind of match them up, which one goes with which. And uh, in their design, it was much more like the latent print black box study, where you're given a an unknown and a known, just just these two, compare these two, reach your conclusion on these two, and then move on to the next pair. All right, you don't you're not mixing and matching. I think it's it you know came to, across to me really clearly that that there's limitations in this set to set comparison because yes. if you've matched up everything else and you're like, well, this is the those are only two that aren't matched up yet, well, they got to go together. And yeah. uh, you can then overvalue what information is present in reaching that identification, while a more one-to-one setup with everything being separate is uh, probably a better way to conduct this kind of research. So Each, each trial is independent, and you yeah. know exactly how many trials each participant conducted, which is, of course, the problem with the, the set-to-set, much like, oh, like the Miami-Dade study where you've got multiple latents, multiple individuals, you don't actually know how many comparisons the person did before they reached a conclusion. And there, there's a number of difficulties when you've got those larger set-type design studies, one-to-end comparisons. So, and I think, you know, that's a fair criticism as well for those, for those other studies uh, and, um, uh, and a reason why that, uh, that AIM study, you know, might be more valued. I wouldn't, completely dismiss all the other studies, but um, I would um, you look to that, uh, that AIM study uh, as being, uh, at least for this aspect of it, maybe a step above uh, some of the other ones. Similar to how I would view in general uh, the, the 
noblest black box study to be, you know, kind of a step above some of the other uh, latent print accuracy studies that have been done. Yeah, just an interesting point. I mean, I agree with you. And from a a study researcher standpoint, uh, they're so much easier to calculate these statistics. And they're great, great design for the research purposes of measuring error rates. I guess that's the that's what I want to say. They're well designed for the purpose of measuring error rates. They don't necessarily reflect actual practice, whereas for us, like the Miami-Dade study is more similar in actual practice, set of latents, set of knowns, now compare. I mean, same thing with firearms. Here's a set of bullets. Here's a set of firearms. Now go and and do this. So there's always this trade-off between which study design is better for the statistics and, and the thing you're trying to measure versus your ecological validity, which one is more most closely designed to the way you actually do your examinations. An interesting trade-off. Well, and, and even still, you know, uh, with the set-to-set, you, you don't necessarily get 12 bullets and 12 guns enough to match them up, right? It, it, exactly. You, you do often have a one-to-one, um, one-gun-to-one casing kind of comparison. But, but you know, point taken, overall, you you do trade off as you fit the study more to be a study and lose some of the realism uh, in certain circumstances. Sure. I, I did find that there were some criticisms here that I, I, I didn't uh, find convincing or, or you know, didn't find concerning uh, that in the set-to-set designs, examiners were unsupervised, given unlimited time. Yeah, same uh, here. Or in the AIMS study, 30% of the original volunteers never completed the study. Like, well, that's, that's studies, right? <laughs> uh, that's par for the course. I mean, like, exactly. Yeah. 30, well, 30%, so that's pretty good, actually. <laughs> but, um, and, and that the study didn't, didn't disclose why they didn't finish the study. Like, I mean, this is volunteer time, right? It's, it's pretty clear uh, that, that this is, like you said, par for the course. And... Uh, I I don't know why it was brought up in this case other than to mislead uh, or why the judge found it convincing enough to put in her opinion. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Yeah, uh, fair point. I I, I agree with you on that. And then we get into inconclusives. Ah, this is where I thought... This is the part I thought was most upsetting. When you told me that you were a little hot... Hot takes tonight, man. Hot takes tonight. Yeah, I, that's what I thought was going to set you off. So I'm just going to sit back and let you rant. Okay, so first off, let me get to the fair point part of this first, right? Because there is an element <laughs> okay. that where this is a fair point. Yep. In this kind of study design, when you're doing one-to-one, which we both agreed is a better way to do it, there's going to be more inconclusives than in a set-to-set design. Like I said, if you line up everything else and you just got one pair left, well, they got to go together. Well, normally it might be inconclusive. Uh, so it, it does make sense from from that perspective why there would be more in this study, in which they do say there were more in this study than in other um, uh, in other studies. But there's also a reason why, right? And that's because of the study design. Fagman testified that mainstream scientists uh-huh, <laughs> would consider the high rate of inconclusive findings twenty percent of the uh, of the, the total results to be error. And because the examiner failed to identify what were designed to be known by, uh, to be known outcomes, match or non-match. And I was just, it, 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 oh boy. 
these studies are, and you know what, for another uh, episode, sorry, I'm all flustered now. For another episode <laughs> uh, that we're coming up here to do soon, we're reading through a paper that uh, Atil Drawer wrote. And he, uh, in that other paper, uh, describes how in basically the exact opposite. And I would put Etil Drawer in general on the side, uh, not the side of the experts, but on the side of the academia. And he clearly outlines why this is completely wrong. Just when you create a sample in this kind of study, you fire the gun, like the casing comes from here. Yep, now I know that this matches to this. That is virtually irrelevant as to whether or not there's sufficient information for an examiner now to compare those and reach a conclusive decision. It would be like if I was going to give you a reading test, Glenn. All right. I'm writing down the word conclusion here on this piece of paper and uh, I show you the word and you can read it. All right. Yeah. Good. You pass the test. I have this known expectation of what the word should be. You read it. You gave the right word. All right. We're good. Now I, I come up um, and I take another word. I'm like, okay, uh, uh, bottle, right? I write down bottle and then I shred that paper and then I burn the remains, give you the ashes and say, Glenn, what does this piece of paper say? You say, I don't know. You're in error. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've used a similar example in fingerprints uh, with Ralph Haber where he has attributed inconclusives as error because they didn't get the answer correct with respect to ground truth. And then I show a smudge with no ridge detail whatsoever, but explain the ground truth is I'm the source of the smudge, which is actually true. But no examiner in their right mind would actually identify me as the source. In fact, I'd argue that's an error if they did identify me or in your example of the ashes. If I did attempt to even give you an answer and say, well, I can read these ashes as I wave my hands over it. I believe that the word was bottle bottle. Uh, you would probably argue that's a pretty poor method, which is going to result in lots of error. And I probably should never have attempted an answer in the first and place. As Dr. Drawer said in his paper recently on this discussion, it would be an error if you got it right. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I totally agree. I, I Hundred percent agree with that, and yeah, th this this didn't surprise me that you found that uh, upsetting, and 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 I even disagree with the point that in mainstream science everyone agrees inconclusive. The failure to identify or exclude is an error. That's not true. Uh, this is a, another PCAST issue that comes up. It's a convention to treat them as errors or not. It is not wrong to count them as errors, but it's also not right to. It sort of depends on the purpose of your tests. Right. And if you're coming in and you're what you're trying to measure is in a situation where the uh, the sample um, and uh, the known and unknown samples are known to come from the same source and you ask the examiner to reach a conclusion and they don't say that it's from the known source, you can treat that as an error. It might be helpful in some measurements is like comparing difficulty of studies uh, to 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 look at that error rate, right? That specificity, sensitivity kind of calculation. Yes. However, in court, that's not what we're doing. We're coming into court. The known in court is the conclusion that the examiner reached. And if we look at, if they reach an identification, we can look at how often when they reach an identification, not when the samples are known to belong to each other, how often are they correct or incorrect there? And inconclusives have nothing to do with that calculation. 
Yeah, I mean, you're advocating statistically for what are called discovery rates. We've discussed in other. You're advocating for a different kind of statistic that doesn't doesn't worry about the number of inconclusives at all. You're advocating for a posterior probability. When you say it's an identification, how often are you wrong? Or when you say it's an exclusion, how often are you wrong? And those are. To me, the, the the more viable statistics that should be used as opposed to error rate statistics. And this is not hard stuff, right? Yeah, like agreed. If, 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 if you can't get this, you, I, I want to take away the DR in the beginning of your name. Like, this is not <laughs> hard stuff. <sighs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to jump in with one other thing, too. And this was a, a frustration I, I personally experienced, it's, again, with when Haber was the expert on the opposing side, was it was a damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you made your study too easy so that there were effectively no inconclusive, so everyone gets the answer, well, now you've got a CTS test. And <laughs> right. the problem with that is that you're not really ever going to see real errors or any measurable sort of error rate. On the other hand, what you need to do to make it you know, more difficult is, of course, have marginal cases where you will get disagreements and errors and people attempting to offer opinions where perhaps they should back off. And and that's a that's a more interesting study design, but go, by the very nature going to have inconclusives. So I found this to always to always be a frustration of mine that if you if you don't have any inconclusives, well then the study's gonna just end up being too easy. But then when you have more inconclusives then they're being treated as errors, which doesn't seem really fair because you did your best to create a challenging enough study to actually introduce some error rate in the first place. It's, so yeah, I mean it It's almost it, it, as if it's frustrating. It's almost as if um the there are certain people on uh that have a side uh, to play in this they don't really <laughs> care what the research is uh they've already decided uh what si- what what they're going to argue and will just look for points that to that uh, support their argument man that sounds like an adversarial system Eric. you mean you mean not science <laughs> well i no i don't know about that it it sounds adversarial to me it sounds like you're taking a position that's adversarial and not giving weight to an alternative view. There's another uh, couple more quotes. Uh, Skurich additionally pointed out that if inconclusive answers were not treated as errors, an examiner could safely declare all comparisons inconclusives, inconclusive and have made no errors. Yeah, exactly. And then we wouldn't have an examiner walking into court with an identification doesn't fit the scenario that we're actually dealing with here with reaching an identification in the court if they had only made inconclusives. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, so Heidi Eldridge's palm print study is coming out very soon. And I think they're probably, in my opinion, the best paper to handle some of these non-consensus decisions. I'm sure when it comes out, we'll review it. But they're, I mean, they really get into this and really discuss uh, and how it cuts both ways, and which is I'm, you and I have discussed, I think, informally before. You know, when there's an opinion, uh, where, you know, if this if a number of participants basically all say inconclusive when they probably could have offered an opinion, you can call them out because you can show that 95% of the other examiners 
offered an opinion. So yep. in that case, inconclusive might have been inappropriate. Although this paper, of course, will explore the other direction when everyone else says inconclusive, but you jumped in and gave an identification. It it says, well, from again, if you're if you're being fair now, this why don't we treat this as sort of an error or an inappropriate conclusion because you have gone against the grain of the masses who all went inconclusive. It sounded like when you said you that time, you weren't speaking generally, but but, but me in particular for, for some reason there, Glenn. <laughs> no, I, 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 was, I wasn't. Uh, but uh, that's joking. your own guilt. Yeah, yeah. The Ames authors noted that not every participant answered every question. True. Uh, participants were theoretically avoiding the more difficult questions. So then here we get into uh, what is completely missing from, from this opinion, and that is discussion on the difficulty of the comparison at hand. Uh, yes. That, yes, theoretically avoiding the more difficult questions is a way to reduce error. Uh, and in this situation, in this instance, in this courtroom, the comparison at hand did not fall into the category of being too difficult to provide an answer. An answer was provided and verified in identification. So maybe then this isn't the scenario really to mention because it has nothing really to do with this sample that here is at hand. And then, then another uh, instance of uh, incon- going even further, saying inconclusives uh, should really be considered uh, false positives uh, because you've lost the opportunity to present it as an exclusion, an exonerating exclusion. Uh, w- so therefore, inconclusive is basically the same as a bad ID. <clears throat> Dr. Scourge. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that his background, the psychometrics, is the same as Ralph Haver? It was really eerie when I was reading this. It was very much Haver-like testimony. Oh, man. I... I this i uh i'm very frustrated that the judge bought into this um again there are many points that were made that were fair and uh the judge seemed to recognize uh many of those uh and, and you know provided a lot of detail in that uh but uh, and just to kind of close out the other witness uh since no one in the courtroom was qualified in statistics they brought in Dr. Heike Hoffman Heike Hoffman Heike yes. Hoffman uh, which from is CSAFE. In statistics, uh, from CSAFE. <sighs> yeah. Who basically I, uh, sided yeah, with the other CSAFE uh, folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to mention this too. You know, this is this is a rare rule that I don't usually see applied. And I think maybe Lisa Steele can correct me, but I think this might fall under maybe 704 in its application where there's effectively a, an, an expert assignment of the court. There is one of the weird rules of evidence that allows the court to pick an expert that's a neutral entity. And it, it, as long as both sides agree, I, I rarely see it used right. in, in forensic settings, but I actually think it should be used more often Sure, where, you know, both sides agree. Yes, this person can be neutral and we can give some views on this. And, and it, it, it's a really great resource for judges that I'm just surprised they don't take advantage of more often, but rather this adversarial system or don't allow any other alternative view so i was surprised to see that invoked in this case 
The, um, the, the quote for, uh, for Dr. Hoffman is that she testified that by excluding inconclusive results, the error rates, error rates were artificially deflated. Uh, now, I, I haven't seen the tr- transcripts, so I'm not sure what, how they got into to the discovery rates, the positive predictive value, the negative predictive value, the, the rates that should have been emphasized here from these studies, uh, and whether or not excluding inconclusive results, that whole topic focused on you know, more of the, of the, uh, the specificity and, and uh, sensitivity uh, calculations. Uh, but I, I, it, it doesn't, isn't mentioned here, so I can only assume that it didn't come up. Uh, and that is concerning from a statistician. Well, huh. not exactly. No? <laughs> I mean, well, I, I, I find my, my view, again, reading PCAST and other sources, are, I'm going to send you something right now to take a look at, Eric. Sure. And... Now, just take a look, and, and you, I'll, I'll explain when you see this photo. All right. Uh, so, Glenn, you sent me the picture. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I sent you a picture of Dr. Hoffman's presentation along with Alicia Karkari. She's Alicia is the head of the CSAFE. And now, look, I've been fairly vocal about my views on CSAFE. And, you know, you could probably hear a little bit of that sarcasm early <laughs> on. Yeah. Again, given that they had no experience in forensic science coming into this, we're given $20 million. And they said their own word, we will fix all of these problems. We will develop these models. $20 million five years later. We don't have anything really yet. I mean, no real studies of so, significance. It's almost like it was a difficult problem to solve and uh, <laughs> overestimated. Now, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be very fair because I've met some amazing individuals through CSAFE, and right. I'm going to give. A, I mean, Hal Stern, you know, is, is a, a member of CSAFE, and I, I remember when I met him in 2000. Nine ten, working on the NIJ NIST project, Human Factors. What I noticed about him is he was insanely curious. One of the first mm-hmm. things he did was ask amazing questions and learn our language, how we as fingerprint examiners spoke. He took the time to learn about these things and then applied all of his knowledge of statistics to really thoughtful ways to approach this. He makes, I see him reviewing various documents. He makes great comments. He's very insightful. Uh, William Thompson is another CSAVE member who I feel the same way about. Simon Cole. Well, Simon know, Cole, I, I mean, as, right. as, a, as a critic for a long time of our field, I, I, you know, I've had many discussions with him and, and find him you know, from the, the old days of, of uh, uh, you know, the, the defending against the critic's curse, you know, old, old days, mm-hmm. um, uh, you probably, I would say probably the most reasonable of, of the, the critics uh, from, from that time period and where, where things stand now and, and helpful uh, as a member also of OSAC. Yeah, and it's about – I mean I, the idea to me is you bring someone with all this expertise and they learn about this thing and then begin to apply their knowledge of statistics. But the critical thing is they don't go into the – I don't really care about your field. I'm just going to apply statistics and I'm just going to do – you have to take the time to learn these things and the nuances. You can't just come in like a bulldozer and expect to just – apply your stuff to this and and to get it right because you're going to miss the nuances so take a look at the photo that i sent you from dr hoffman this is yeah. the, and a couple of years after csafe and i shouldn't say just hoffman but you know the, the head of csafe as well alicia uh, w- notice the principle that they are referring to in there 
Wait, the Lockhart principle? Every contact leaves a trace? The Lockhart principle. Wait, Are you that... familiar with the Lockhart principle? I've not heard of the Lockhart principle. Every contact leaves a trace is familiar, but isn't that Lockhart? There you go, my friend. Did he misspell Lockhart as Lockhart? Yes, they did. <laughs> oh, God. No, but this is exactly my point. If I went into a bunch of lawyers and said... This is in said, Safferstein, people. I mean, come on. <laughs> if I went into a bunch of lawyers, right, and I, I'm a forensic scientist, I'm going I'm to fix all your legal problems, and I start referring it to a Dilbert hearing, don't you think that they might uh, question my expertise on yes. what I'm going to offer the legal yes. community? Yes. This is exactly my point. This was not, by by the way, before they got that grant, uh, the, the CSAFE grant, this was two or three years into it. And they have a slide that says the Lockhart principle, not Locard, the Lockhart principle. And nobody seemed to have caught this or noticed this. Um this this is where I go, hmm, you know what? I realize that forensic science has deficiencies and we need help from the outside. Agreed. But you better do your homework and really kind of learn these nuances of this field you're trying to help. Like Hal Stern and William Thompson and others who have taken that time and effort and have that immense curiosity and asking good questions to educate themselves and then offering this expertise from the outside. That's what I want to see. I'm sending you a picture back of uh, an XKCD. Uh, if anyone is familiar with XKCD, it's a web comic. You can look this one up, xkcd.com slash 793. Uh, it says someone walks up, say a statistician, to uh, someone in a different field, says, uh, oh, you're trying to predict the behavior of, insert any complicated system here, uh, just model it as simple system, uh, and then add some secondary terms to account for complications i just thought of easy right what does your whole field need a journal i don't get it <laughs> yeah i i saw a member of the nas council or sorry the nas report do exactly what that describes she gave a presentation and she basically said why don't you guys just use a standard deviation to measure you know these differences you know so you just count the number of minutia that you have and then use like a, sta a three standard deviations and beyond that you know then you can say that you know it's got the significance and i remember christoph and me and cedric were like looking at her are you insane? And you're a statistician and you were commenting on how forensic scientists are lacking in this and that's what your solution is, is using three standard deviations? Apparently this individual too has recently attempted to do some error rate studies in fingerprints and found, wow, they're kind of hard to design realistic studies. <laughs> yeah. No. Yes. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to share that Lockhart principle with you, the the famous Lockhart. And and that's not, I, I I don't mean to necessarily make make fun of Dr. Hoffman here, but I was expecting a more nuanced sort of neutral view coming in from Hoffman on this, and I I didn't get exactly as you said that nuanced view looking at discovery rates and positive predictive value and sort of understanding the role of inconclusive in forensic science and the use of it and other solutions. Again, now we're just looking at this opinion. I, I would totally change that if I read her transcripts and right, went, right. oh, okay. 
I, I see that there's a, a very, you know, I, I see that she did give all of this, but the judge only commented on this part of the testimony. Totally. So I, I am totally willing to back off if I saw transcripts. But that slide that I, I found was not encouraging when I was reviewing their knowledge of forensic science. So, I mean, I, I like I said, overall, there's some stuff, there were some fair criticisms included in here. Uh, but what are we talking about here? Is this, is this a, um, like the easiest of easy comparisons, uh, you know, um, uh, casing to, to the gun? Is it, is it really a difficult one? Was it, is it like a borderline decision? Is it somewhere in between where, do, where that I think is not mentioned here at all first and ex- very key to where this decision should have gone. Uh, if, if there's concerns about the accuracy of this comparison field, well, then let's recognize that the accuracy is determined highly on how difficult the comparison is. If, if there's no documentation of at all of this process of which features were utilized, uh, and the examiner could not discuss at all how this compared because there was no documentation to other comparisons uh, that they've done. Okay, fair point, really, in actuality. But if that's all there and they can show, maybe, and I don't, I don't know for this part, that it is on the easy end, then this decision doesn't fit the case. If they can show, no, nope, this is borderline. Like we, we had to kind of shop this around to get it verified. Well, okay, then maybe this, 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 this is a fair decision. Uh, but without that being mentioned at all, it's the main concern just not being there. All right, so I had a couple of things that stood out too, and one of the things uh, beyond you know the technical aspects you talked about, the statistics and the inconclusive, which you know I, for the most part I agree with, but maybe don't necessarily feel as strong about some of those issues. And again, you know, I w- with respect to to Fagman, uh, you know, I, I I know David, I know he's knowledgeable about many of the disciplines of forensic science, but he's definitely taken a partisan attitude. I mean, very early on, I remember David and Steve Meager having, I think it was an NPR debate about fingerprints real early on in the Plaza days. But there were some really interesting legal things that I focus on, and I enjoy some of the legal aspects. And what I thought was interesting was the Fry analysis itself. Now, New York being a, one of the, the Fry states, there aren't that many left. Most of them True. are Daubert or some version of 702C as in Charlie. But New York's a, a Fry state. And, you know, besides general acceptance, the one of the keys of Fry is that it's got to be a novel technique. And in my experience, I have found that most states don't don't adhere to that. So it has to be a new technique that's come along. And if it's already been accepted previously into the court system, then they tend not to have these fry hearings. I mean, that's how it should be applied. But in practice, that's never the case. Uh, New York tends to have these fry hearings. They've had multiple on fingerprints and firearms. Many states will often have not just a fry aspect to it, but a prong of some case, or the case application. Minnesota is a Fry-Mac state. Fry being like the federal case and Mac being the Minnesota case. 
Uh, Fry, generally? Well, uh, Fry's not a federal case. It's a District of Columbia case. So it's, uh, it's, it was, it's the historical admissibility standard for the state is Fry. So it's the general acceptance aspect and Mac being the specific application and certain prongs. But, but Mac being, it was, uh, Mac was specifically a Minnesota case. Is Correct. I guess what I meant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like in California, it's Kelly Fry. It's a Kelly Fry analysis where Kelly is the application of the Fry. And then you get into specifics, not just general acceptance, but is it generally accepted to be reliable? Is it, uh, was it applied in an appropriate manner in this case? These little prongs that come up. And, and in fact, in all the states, the only state in, in, with respect to fingerprints, that ever seems to do a, a pure fry analysis is the state of Washington. Washington has never had a fry hearing on fingerprints. They have had motions, but every time the judge gets the motion for a fry hearing in Washington, the judge goes, "This isn't new. It's been in the courtroom for I don't know a hundred years. Right. Uh, we're not ha- we're not having a fry hearing." And and even this sort of discussed it, and it cited that a New York case, a New York case. Dealing with this, I'll I'll read this. Nothing about this practice is novel. Familiarity does not always breed accuracy, and our fried jurisprudence amounts for the fact that evolving views and opinions in the scientific community may occasionally require the scrutiny of a fry hearing with respect to a familiar technique, which doesn't quite make sense to me in the sense that if it's not new and it's familiar, why would you ever do this? But, you know, it goes on to say there's no absolute rule as to when fry hearing should or should not be granted, and the court should be guided by the current state of scientific knowledge and opinions and making such determinations. And then they go on to basically note that, well, we've been having these kinds of uh, fry hearings for DNA, for example, like low copy DNA. But to me, this is that's totally different. Yeah, I mean, that's low new. copy DNA is a different application of DNA. I mean, you have, you know, uh, a new, RFLP DNA. Okay, that's one fry hearing. And then you go to STR. Well, that's a new one. Maybe you have new kits that have been validated and modified and more alleles. Well, that's a new fry hearing. Low copy DNA and various mixtures. Well, there's, there's another one. I mean, if fingerprints or in this case firearms isn't changing, I, from a legal perspective, I don't understand that other than the fact that these states that call themselves fry, have this weird workaround that they're still going to have these fry hearings, <laughs> right. with the exception of Washington. They're they're in my my view the only state that's ever been very pure about the application of fry. Which is why so many states have decided, all right, now we're done with fry because it doesn't. The new part doesn't really matter. We want to focus on this other aspects of it, so we're going to go Daubert or seven hundred two. Right, which to me is actually a better analysis from a scientific standpoint right it, it's a more fair analysis and incorporates fry anyway because the first part of daubert is general acceptance right, and fry, right. fry fry is absorbed inside of that and then it goes obviously much further so I, I thought that legal analysis was interesting why they even had it in the first place the the other thing i thought that was interesting too was that there's this line here i'm going to read it would be farcical to preclude experienced ballistic experts from rendering any opinion about known manufacturing marks. There is a consensus, or at least not all that much disagreement, to allow examiners to express an opinion on tool marks that are class characteristics. So there's this idea of we don't want to keep it out altogether because there's probably some basic information that all people can agree on, like the class characteristics and basic identification of firearms components and you know various terminology and various 
uh, um, you know, just basic firearms information 101 that could be useful. It's, of course, as you pointed out earlier, the rejection of talking about even any individual characteristics or the existence of individual characteristics, which is really new from these hearings. I just have not seen one that wouldn't allow you to even talk about individual characteristics. You mentioned the DNA uh, part, and that reminded me of a thing that I had highlighted but skipped over here. Uh, and that is a question for, for Dean Fagman about the importance of establishing error rates. Right. So again, the question is about error rates. Okay. Mm. So then his, here's his answer, right? Three, uh, four, four sentences here. Uh, the error rates really define the weight that you want to give. All applied science is probabilistic. We never say 100%. Even DNA gives you a random match probability which is a probabilistic statement about the DNA profile. And so the error rate tells you what are the costs potentially. Does the same thing struck, strike out to, or stand out to you as it did to me there? I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure if you're saying he confused the two, because uh, I'm not sure that he did, but he didn't point out that DNA doesn't have actual human error rates that they tend to report, that they only report random match probabilities. The okay. fact that he talked about both of them simultaneously was a little confusing. Yeah, to me, it, it was the questions about error rates. The answer starts in the first sentence about error rates, switches to random match probability, not an error rate, and then ends with error rate. Yeah. It's this It's this whole top. It's it's. It very, I mean, again, I have to read the whole transcript to really get the full picture, but it seems to be uh, a, a misunderstanding uh, or a misleading about what random match probability is. Uh, and again, this is, the, this is the testimony from Dean Fagman and highlighted as very important, so much so as to quote it uh, in the judge's opinion. Um, yeah, I, I think he understands the distinction between the two. I think it was confusing to bring both up together in the same comment sentence because it did sound like they were being conflated with each other. I No, I agree. It was confusing in that context, but I don't know. I, I kind of think he so, does know the difference. Again, that's not really the thing I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is what does the judge understand from his uh, comments of random match probability to be and from reading, you know, and, and is very important in her decision here. And uh, I would just surmise that she understands that to be an error rate calculation. Good point. Uh, that, that, that's a fair point. What's the, what's, what's the judge going to hear there? Yeah, so I have one last observation here, which just stood out to me as I read this. I'll just read this last line. It's right at the end of this. As there is no scientific standard in place at this point in time, our intent is to explain an approach to addressing these tasks. While documenting all steps and providing all codes so that other researchers and forensic scientists can reproduce and expand on our findings. Now, this is coming from CSAFE Dr. Hoffman, and here's ultimately what she says. And this stood out to me as sort of the same issue I brought up earlier, because here's the quote. Science may well eliminate the interpretation, guesswork, and biases associated with visual forensic examinations. Science will eliminate interpretation, guesswork, and biases. I, I have a hard time accepting that because... Again, if we want to say DNA has um, eliminated that because they have these statistics and these, you know, this sort of standard approach, 
plenty of interpretation in DNA and that there are assumptions that need to be made. You still have to interpret the significance of statistics and results. I, I don't know that I want the kind of science that is being proposed here by CSAFE removing expert interpretation. I, I, I get the goal here is to make these things more objective and to make them repeatable and reproducible. I'm on board with that altogether. I just... I, that, that to me seems um, – it, it seems like it's missing the understanding of what, again, forensic science is at its heart. Or it's, in science altogether as well. Yeah. I mean this this reads like a statistician would, would interpret science. Right. I'm going to give you a button that you can push and get a bunch of numbers on. And you should just be able to give those numbers to people and they'll know what to do with them. It, it sort of is very – it is a it, it's it's insight into the mind of a statistician that's kind of missing the value of having experts that do interpretation. Well, and, and not just that, but in science in general, I, I would feel I feel is more of the understanding the limitations of uh, and the the problems and trying to minimize or understand or put into context all of the biases. Uh, and issues that you see when conducting science, not that science eliminates those things, but right. seeks to further understand and include them in the interpretation. It, it just seems completely backwards as to as to what my view of science is. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm, I'm all for exactly that, moving in that direction, having these tools, more objective tools, more consistent objective objective rigorous methods i'm all for that want that but i don't want the human examiner removed from the equation altogether and no one to help guide understand the significance of results and interpreting the the meaning of these results otherwise i why would i ever go to a doctor i would just go to some sort of automatic machine draws my blood and just simply spits out numbers to me uh, but, you know, I, there's a, an important element of a, a physician who can tell you what the results of these tests mean and proper treatment. And, you know, I, I, let's not take out that human expertise from this. Well, and I, what I'm reading between the lines that you're, of your, what you're saying there is that there is there is um, there's value and accuracy uh, there. Uh, if you can if you can go to a doctor, uh, an electronic doctor uh, who is. Just you know, like an idiocracy, like ninety nine point nine 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 percent, and just like you give them the blood, and they're like this is what's wrong with you, this is what your treatment, no mistakes, right every single time. Well, sure, fine, like whatever. I don't need to go see my my uh, GP anymore because this takes care of it. That's not that's not there, right? And the same thing here with the forensic science, the the machine to do this work and produce better results doesn't exist it's not close to existing uh and and which is why that there is this value if if again some point down the road there is a machine that will will do this better than the best firearms examiner or latent print examiner you know what all right time to find a new job you know the the uh, uh the telephone operator ladies they don't have their job anymore because we got electric switches to do it now and no one's really complaining about that Maybe it's going to come at some point in time. I really don't think so, but but maybe. But until that time, you can't just be like, all right, nope. We're just waiting until the machines can come along and do it for us. Yeah. 
Skynet. Sky, Skynet. All right, Glenn, I think we've wrapped this one up. Um, what kind of closeout things do we have to cover? Uh, we got to give the answer to that uh, that anagram. Uh, what else uh, do we have? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's do the anagram. So I I believe I I have the answer. Although I I want to point out that there I I found other answers too. Oh no, <laughs> but yeah. it does have to relate to uh, yeah. <laughs> to to fingerprints in some way. Well, I guess that depends on how you look at okay. it. Okay. Uh, no, I guess not. <laughs> uh, one possible solution is council veins. Or council vines, you could get either. Okay, yeah, yeah. Again, the the, the words that we started with were uncivil scone, uh, uncivil, uncivil scone. scone. Yeah, given the topic today, uh, hopefully the listeners figured out since it was said quite a few times throughout <laughs> the episode, uh, it would be inconclusive. Yeah, I, I I did try since you know thinking ahead uh, this time. Other times I haven't done that, but this time I did try to think ahead a little bit. Uh, good job, good job. Uh, Thank you. All right, well, we, we have a little uh, news to share from a friend of the show, uh, Lisa Steele, uh, who's been on the show a number of times. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll send us uh, emails and thoughts and feedback uh, on our shows here regularly. Uh, Views from a lawyer. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, she just published a new book uh, by Lisa J. Steele, Defense Counsel Playbook for Eyewitness ID Cases. You know, eyewitness IDs being a topic that I know is near and dear to her heart, and uh, so here's a whole uh, a whole book on it for. Um, and so, if you search for that defense counsel playbook for eyewitness ID cases uh, at the nacdl.org, uh, it should be fairly easy to find uh, you know, with with uh, with all those search terms through the Google. So, congratulations, Lisa, and uh, and hope this book is. Uh, a big success and, and helpful to uh, to you know, defense attorneys uh, arguing in uh, eyewitness ID cases. Yeah, congratulations. That's that's a huge uh, monumental feather in your cap. And I imagine, I you know, like writing a thesis or a book, these things are much like children. You work on them for nine months and then push them out <laughs> into the world and, and hope that uh, people enjoy them <laughs> and want to be around them. Strange an- uh, analogy from, you know, two old white guys, but uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I know what it's like to, to birth a child. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, boy. Can you imagine? Is that, I'm just thinking back to the, you know, the old junior movie. Um, oh, I, yeah. I just, just by height, I guess I call Arnold. Uh, you, you have to be uh, Danny DeVito. Uh, okay, so. yeah, fair <laughs> enough. That's, that's about right. Uh, all right. Um Let's see. We got that. We got that. Uh, anything else to mention here before we close out the show? Well, I, this is going to end up being a bit of a two-parter. Oh, right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So the the very next episode, which should come out a little sooner than usual, because we're going to continue recording tonight. We're going to talk about some cases that I was involved in, where some of the things we just talked about, I had this upfront experience that I'll share with and pick Eric Eric's brain a little bit on. So. You're you're looking at a couple of court cases and legal discussions over the next couple of episodes. Yeah, and and Glenn has purposely kept me in the dark, so I have no idea what's coming. I've done no preparation at all for this next episode, and uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. But uh, no, I'm looking forward to that discussion too. 
Uh, all right. Well, thank you again to all of our patrons. Uh, if you want to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Uh, also, you can help us out by going to our webpage, doubleloopodcast.com, and looking up uh, what merchandise we have available there in the store. Uh, T-shirts and mugs and glasses and neckties, all sorts of, of stuff. Um, I, I, I heard a YouTube channel I watch uh, put their, their logo on a baby onesie. So uh, we'll see if we can find a, a baby onesie to put our, uh, our logo on. That'd be a kick to to get a photo from, from someone out there in the field that, that uh, are indoctrinating their children early into the life of latent print examiners. <laughs> uh, but um, you can also follow us uh, on uh, Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram at Double Loop Pod, uh, or you can go to the website for links to all those things. Uh, with that, uh, the opinions expressed on the show belong to the speaker, not anyone that they may work for. Um, Oh, email addresses. If you have thoughts on this case, uh, any follow-up questions that you want to ask us, uh, eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. And I'll talk to you guys next time. Just be a couple minutes for me, but a whole week for you. Talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane. Stay sane.